I decided to do this series in the book of uh, John, the 17th chapter, after I, after I saw what Dawson was going to do, his series on the, the I am sayings of Jesus in John. And you really don't get a, an appreciation for this beautiful gospel until you delve down into it uh, the way that we're hoping to do and look at the constitu- all the parts and how all of it fits together because what John's purpose was was to explain who this person, Jesus Christ, is. Who is he? And what did he come to do? What was his uh, work on earth? And what we find out throughout the gospel, but particularly in his prayer in chapter 17, which we're going to look at again today and for the next five, six weeks, is this theme of glory. And I think a lot of us, when we think of glory of God, we think of something sparkly and bright, maybe a bright light, uh, something like that. And that's just not exactly what glory is, especially when it applies to God. It's not something distinct from Him. It's not something that radiates from Him. It is something that He is. And to understand this prayer at all and to apply it to your life, which is hopefully the goal we all have, um, is to understand Jesus, to know him. In fact, the prayer talks about that. And to understand and know, not just see, but know the glory of God. How does that affect your life. And as we read this prayer of Jesus, I'm hoping that our study of his prayer, this final prayer, uh, will help shape your life, shape the way you look at things in your life. In uh, verses 1 through 5, Jesus, the outline I gave you is very simple. 1 through 5, he prays primarily for himself. Now there's a little transition in 6 through 8, but not all scholars agree on that, so some scholars will put 6 through 8 along with uh, 9 through 19. If you're more comfortable doing that and simplifying the outline, it's okay. In those verses, he talks primarily about his followers, his disciples, his immediate disciples. And then uh, at the end, in 20 through 26, Jesus sort of wraps up the prayer by gathering up the glory of God and himself and his Uh, 12 disciples and and the other disciples that were in their band, their group. And he he joins the church with that, all of us who will believe through the ages, and he brings it all to a a grand conclusion, which we'll look at in a few weeks. Some of the things that he talks about in this prayer are fascinating. He talks about his work on earth, his message, his words. Talks about his miracles, which I said were not just bare miracles. In fact, in the Gospel of John, and I haven't, I'm not going to quote any scriptures from any other part of the Bible today. I'm just going to stick with John and show you how rich and deep and pregnant this uh, Gospel is with these themes. Miracles were not just miracles. They were not to dazzle the eyes and ears of people. They were not something that was just done willy-nilly. No, miracles were called signs. Simeon in Greek, they were signs that pointed to something. So when Jesus healed a leper, he was saying, 
I, the clean one, make the leper clean. I, the light of the world, make the blind see. I, the one who is strong and whole and upholds the universe, can heal the lame and the cripple. I'm the one who has no sin, who can go into the life of those who do have sin, and I can wash them clean. I can bear the weight of your sin, which none of us can bear. You will not bear it, because we all know we're going to die, which is a result of our sin. So what are you going to do with it? Are you going to try to work it off with some, some bit of good works, or some sort of merit, or giving money? Not a bad idea. But think about it. What price for our sins? He talks about his message, his miracles, and throughout the Gospel of John, he wants to make the Father known. He wants you to know the Father. He talks about the disciples and their qualifications, but he doesn't say not one word about they're qualified because they're good people or they're sacrificing their life. Nothing. One commentator said it was not their obedience to the individual commands of God or his teachings, but to their readiness. Listen, this this should take a load off of your back. Christianity should not be a weight that you're just carrying around like a ton of bricks, like Christian and Pilgrim's Progress. No, listen, it's not their obedience to individual commands and teachings, but to their readiness to trust Jesus, His message, His mission, His identity, best they could understand it at the time, just to simply trust Him. And here at Christ the King, we end every sermon. Will you trust Him? He's not asking you to turn the world upside down. You can't. He did. And He asks us to join Him in that by trusting Him. Does your obedience matter? Most certainly. But so does your repentance. So does your faith. So does your new obedience when you've repented and believe and move on. All matter to this great king. He prays in this prayer for protection from the evil one, for love and unity, for sanctification, in other words, for our progress in growth. And finally, he asks for, Father, I don't want to go back to heaven. I don't want to go back to my glory. Listen to this. Without them, I want them to be with me. Now, I know some people question God's love for them. I do. I know he loves you. But in the darkness of my own soul, the dark times of the night when I wonder, I'm not so sure he loves me. And I come here and I preach to you. He loves you. But I think we're all like that. We get home, we're alone. We know, we see inside and we go, how? How does he love this? And we should never see a frown on his face. He delights in his people. He looks with relish upon his people because he does not see you buried under the load of sin. He sees his son pinned to a cross for you, as you, in your place. There's nothing like the gospel of Jesus in this world. Nothing compares. So let's look quickly at the passage and then I'll run through some things with you. It's printed in your bulletin, by the way. And so uh, if you don't have your Bible with you, we're going to read just the first five verses. So let's, let's hear God's word. 
17, chapter 17 of John, the first five verses of his prayer. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is the word of the Lord. We went ahead and printed the transition in there. You can look at that at your leisure. But I want to concentrate. Last week we talked about the glory of God. What is it? Today I'm going to talk a little bit more deeply about the glory of Jesus. This glory that, you know, it's not something that's hard to get your head around. It theolo- Theologians have written volumes about how this is possible, but it's hard to comprehend. I mean, we can apprehend it. That's not a problem. But comprehending it, really getting your head all the way around this concept that Jesus and God are co-equal in substance. They don't share the same substance. They are the same substance, the substance of divinity. Jesus was 100% divine. The Father is 100% divine. The Holy Spirit is 100% divine. And the the formula of Chalcedon uh, from the Chalcedonian uh, Council, that was, I think it was 431. If I got that right, I should get extra credit. Uh, that council defined how that substance and how it all went together and said it wasn't mixed. Jesus wasn't half human, half God. He wasn't confused. In other words, it wasn't all mixed up. It was separate and yet equal. All God and 100% human. Now we tend to minimize a little bit perhaps his human side Uh, in favor of the divine. This was one of the early problems in the church. But he was every bit human as you and I. How do we know? In the words of Shakespeare, when you pricked him, he bled. That's how you know. You pricked me, I bleed. And he did. So what about this glory that he's talking about. Well, I read you John 1, 1 through 4. I'm not going to read the whole thing today, but, but quickly, just to refresh, and then we'll talk about how this fits in. Three things. He talks about the hour that has come. He talks about his work. And finally, in this last verse, 4 and 5 are together, he talks about who he is. And this, this is absolutely... Um, life transforming if you will let it sink down and become part of you to know this about him and then take it and apply it to your life so the glory of God was made visible in Jesus humanity that's what John is trying to communicate everybody that that was in Israel in that day that was a Jew believed in the glory of God and they believed the glory of God was behind the veil 
in the temple, back in there somewhere, and that nobody could look at it or see it because you would die, and they had all kinds of regulations so people wouldn't go back there by mistake or go back there without having washed themselves properly and gone through all the ritual cleansing. So John is making a profoundly theological argument for the glory of God, which everybody believed in, abiding and now being made visible by this man Jesus, his son. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. I told you that's prosopon, prosopon his face. So God is facing Jesus. Jesus is facing his Father. And there this, Jesus, the Son, is the spitting image of the Father. A perfect reflection. And in him, all the fullness of God dwells bodily. He was in with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. What you see, the material universe, was made and crafted by Jesus. Without him, nothing made that has been made was made. That's what he's saying. There's just nothing around that Jesus was involved in the creation from the beginning. In him was life. The life was the light of men. Mankind. Verse 14, the word became flesh, made his dwelling or his tent, his tabernacle, the place where he was going to live with us. We have seen his glory, glory of the only, the monogene, the only son of God who came from the father, full of grace and truth. This doesn't mean that Jesus was just another person out there in the celestial heavens. He was God himself, clothed in flesh. He wasn't the Father, he was the Son. Now, don't think, oh, I don't understand that. But welcome to the club. Nobody really understands it, and yet it's true. And if it's not true, none of the rest of his prayer makes any difference. Just doesn't matter. Just another man died. They could have pinned me to the cross, and it would have been the same thing. The cross is significant because of who was there. The grave is significant because who went in there. The grave is significant because who came out. The cradle, the manger is significant because who was born there. Otherwise, just another baby, as cute as they all are. Did did Jesus lose that glory? Was it taken away from him? Some, some people in Christian circles will teach the, what's called the kenosis theory that uh, according to John, uh, Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus emptied himself of his glory and that's a heresy. The church does not accept that. We don't believe that he emptied himself or lost his glory or any of his glory went away. He retained his glory. He just did something far more wonderful He clothed that glory with His flesh. And when the the time came and He peeled it back just a little bit, He didn't peel it back all the way, folks, but up on the Mount of Transfiguration, He opened it a little bit and it was revulgent. They couldn't look at it. And God said, this is my Son. You want to know what my Son really is? This is Him. 
And the revulgence of God burst out upon the earth. The three disciples within Peter, uh, John and James, they were blown away. Peter wanted to make a tabernacle and worship right there and then on the mountaintop. They weren't talking about a man. They knew who he was at that moment. He didn't set his glory aside, folks. He clothed it with our frail humanity for this reason. His hour, his hour had come. You know, all through the book of John, John chapter 2, when he's going to turn the water into wine, his mom asks him to help these people at the wedding in Cana, and Jesus told her, he was kind of stern with her. He says, look, my hour has not yet come. There's another time in chapter 7, he's uh, talking and the, and the people were so excited. Oh my goodness, this is Messiah. We got, so we got to grab him and make him king. He just walked away. My hour has not yet come. And again in chapter 8, my hour has not yet come. But in chapter 12, he changes. Listen. Some Greeks, I shared this with you last week, just to get everybody on the same page. Some Greeks in Jerusalem were at the Passover, some Gentiles. They came to Philip and they said, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Philip goes and gets Andrew and the two of them go to Jesus. And Jesus says this. The the disciples asked Jesus, simple question. There's Greeks here, would you like to talk to him? And then he answers in this crazy kind of weird way. We don't even know. Why would he say this? Now the hour has come. Now the time has come. And then he says the Son of Man is going to enter into his glory. Then he describes the glory. Truly, I tell you. Unless a seed is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many kernels, a harvest of new life. Now, listen to these agonizing words. Now my soul is troubled. And what should I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this purpose I've come to this hour. Father, bring glory to your name. What's he talking about? He's talking about the cross. You know, this is why I think people kind of recoil a little bit at Christianity because when you look, you know, we want strength. We want a man in the White House. We want generals that run our army who are committed to Christianity. And we want strength and money and guns and weapons and all of that. We see power as the thing. And here your Savior is saying that's not going to be the way for us. And I know it makes, it makes us uncomfortable. Going, you mean I'm, what, what am I going to do without my 357 Magnum? Well, I mean, there's nothing wrong with guns. But when they take a place in your life that only God should have, anything and everything can become a problem, right? All of it can, even good things. You know, we often, of course, those of us in the Reformed tradition who like John Calvin, we draw John Calvin like a gun. And we're ready to shoot anybody that's not like us. 
which is most everybody. So you, it can be anything, folks, that we use, that we weaponize, and we're just not allowed to do it. This is the, this is the reason I came. This is our Savior is saying, you want to know what the glory of the Christian life is? Give your life away. Give it up. Disadvantage yourself for others. Take up your cross and follow me. Be buried with me in the ground and you too will rise to newness of life and will have fruit in this earth. And the 21st century is going to be a defining century for the Christian church in America. So when the history books are written in another century or two, we're either going to go down as the most selfish and entitled and bratish Christians that ever lived, the most self-indulgent, or the most deeply repentant, generous, sorrowful, humble, broken church, maybe in all of history. We have that opportunity. I preached my heart out about it last year, and I'm going to continue, and so is Dawson. We've got to be different than the world around us, folks. For this purpose, I came to this hour. Then Jesus cries out, and I hope you will do this with me too. Father, bring glory to your name no matter what it costs, no matter what it takes. Bring glory to your name. Everything I'm going to, I'm going to lay it all down for you. And a voice came from heaven. Listen, a voice came from heaven. They didn't know. They thought it was thunder. They thought an angel spoke. I've already brought you glory and I will do it again. He's talking about his cross. He associates this hour, this time of suffering and shame and degradation and torture and dying, being spit upon, being reviled, being despised. He associates that time with the time of his glory. It's, it's just it's hard to even say, folks. I'm not doing a good job of getting it out there, but I, I hope it's sinking in. In John chapter 1, listen. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only, the Monogene, who is himself God and closest at his side, the Father has made him known. So, that's his hour. He's telling his church to be different. Doesn't mean that you don't smoke, don't drink, uh, don't cuss, uh, don't dance, don't play poker, and don't go out with girls that do, and all of those types of things. It's not going to be about your behavior. Your, your behavior will change. For certain it will change. But it isn't going to be primarily about those things. It's going to be how radical are you at giving your life away, at knowing your Savior, not knowing about Him. That's easy. But to know Him means to obey Him, means to enter into His life of suffering and of radical giving. So that brings us to His work. His hour, an hour of suffering, 
But his work he has accomplished. He's letting us know in this prayer, I'm on a path and I will not stray. In the prayer he's saying, I'm going all the way. I'm going to sweat blood in a few minutes in Gethsemane. I'm going to pray that the cup... Uh, could be taken away from me. I'm going to do everything I can to get the Father to listen and to remove this cross from me. But if He doesn't, I'm going all the way for you. I will not shirk. I will not draw back. I will not look into the pit of hell and step back and say, no, not for me. He goes all the way. Not my will. Your will be done. And He steps right in knowing the cost. Eyes wide open. Look at verses 2 through 4. He says, Father, you have given me authority or power to give eternal life to all that you've given. How does God give Jesus the power of life and death? Because Jesus was willing to go into death and wrench it from the one, the ruler of the... Take it from Him. By His death. The the great Puritan theologian uh, uh, John Owen wrote the the book, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. Now, I, I tried to read it. Very hard to understand. But you can get a little pamphlet by J.I. Packer who explained it in simple terms, which is also very hard to understand. The point is, Jesus, to get the power of life and death, he had to be the life and the death. He had to bear the death. And he did. His work. You've given me authority, power over all of that. And this is eternal life. Here he defines it. You want to know what eternal life is? It's not a cloud that we're going to float on up in heaven with a harp that we're going to uh, play. It's some, some ridiculous thing. No, eternal life is knowing him. Not knowing about him. You can know facts, but no. Knowing him in, in, the, in the intimate, relational sense of the word. Not knowing God in the abstract or the Holy Spirit in the abstract, but no. Knowing God through His Son Jesus because you can feel Him. You can touch Him. You can put your hands in the print of the nails. That's what He told John to, or Thomas to do after the resurrection in this gospel. The writer, John, the, the writer of the gospel, he's laboring to make the point that all of this is wrapped up. His person, His work, His hour, all the package. I've glorified you on earth. I've accomplished the work you've given me. Everything Jesus said, everything He did was displaying how God feels about you. I doubt anyone here has had leprosy. Everyone here has done something or experienced something unclean. So maybe you didn't have leprosy. How do you get rid of that uncleanness? What are you going to do with it? That's the honest question. What will you do with it? What will the, the lie that you told yesterday, what are you going to do with that? Or what if it's some egregious sin? What are you going to do? How will you pay? By being a good person? 
not enough. By despairing over not being a good person? No. But by running to Jesus Christ because he accomplished the work that God gave him to do. I only do, he said, I only do what the Father says. He said that in chapter 5. I and the Father are one, chapter 10. Show us the Father. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Uh, uh, Dawson preached on this a few weeks ago. Plus all the I am statements. Jesus' work was to show us the Father. So did the Father have to die on the cross? No. Did God die on the cross? Yes and no. Jesus died on the cross. Fit that into your life. Think about it. The power, the majesty of this one life. So finally, let's look at his person. He talks about this. Two through four, he's talking about his work. And uh, in verse 5 now, he talks about his glory again. So 1 and in, one in 5 form a, what we call a chiasm or an inclusio. Uh, and, and the very central verse in this little picture here is verse 4, uh, verse 3 and 4. His person, Father, look at verse 5, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus has spoken about several things. He's talked about the glory here on the earth that he was bringing to God the Father in coming and becoming a human being. But now he references a glory that he had before the beginning of the world. Now, I I realize that, you know, maybe this is not clicking, but let me see if if I can put it all together. In these five verses... You could, you could spend months, years studying what is going on in these five verses, but basically it comes down to this. Jesus is saying, I'm God. I became a man. I suffered death on the cross. I turned ignominy and darkness and evil and filth and sin and uncleanness and all of that I took it and I absorbed it into myself and because I am the glory of God, the glory of God, listen to this, folks, the glory of God did not get tarnished. The glory of God didn't get made unclean. This man, this Jesus that you worship, that we claim as our Savior, he is so great and so loving and so powerful that he absorbed all that uncleanness, all that darkness, all the blindness, all the sin, the filth, all of it. He just absorbed it into himself and he put it in a grave and he shut the door on the grave and he stepped out and said, You're clean. Now, I realize that we're all Presbyterians and you don't dare show any emotion. But uh, I want to see some emotion. Come on, amen. Glory to God. He stepped out of the grave and he said, you know where your sins are now forever? They're pinned to that tree and they're buried in this grave. They never can condemn you. Never come back to haunt you. Can you take it for granted? Can you just presume on his grace? No, why would you? 
Anybody that asks me that question, well, you're just giving us a license to sin. You don't understand what happened. This will crush you to the ground. This will bring you to your knees. You'll want to kiss the hem of His garment. And you'll make mistakes and you won't try to fix it. You'll run to Him with all your might and fall back down at His feet. Say, I messed up. Okay, come here, I love you. Because He's been in hell. Folks, this has got to change the church. This truth has got to become greater than critical race theory and any of the other stuff that the church is arguing about today. It's disgusting. doesn't mean that it doesn't matter when our government and our culture is going off the rails. But this does. It matters immensely. And so before we address all these cultural, before we start delving into what's wrong with them, we've got to figure out what is going on with us. Why are we so ineffectual? And I would argue, folks, we don't have the glory of God. It's not radiating from us. Listen, I'll finish with this. You're, you're getting glory from something whether it's your money or your good looks or uh, uh, the kind of car you drive, uh, perhaps your race. What, you know, I come from this long line of great people. That's okay. All of those things are fine. Money's good. I love money. Not really. No, these things are good. You can't let them define you. And you know something is defining you when it's when it's questioned or brought up and you start to squirm, you don't like it. Don't, don't talk to me about that. Now you know. There it is. I don't have to do anything. I just need to say it. There it is. It controls us. So here, something is controlled. Something is the glory in your life. What is it? Put yourself under the light and Look. And then go to Jesus. Listen, here it is. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own, but his own didn't receive him. Yet, listen, Yet to all who believed, he gave the right to become the children of God. Children born, not of natural descent, nor human decision, nor a will of a husband, but born of God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son of God. For God loved the world. Listen. God loved the world in this way, this manner. Here's how he did it. He gave his one and only. So everyone who believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world 
because he got condemned. Not to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and all the Father has given me, I've lost not one. And we know the church is full of sheep and goats. Ask yourself, what is your glory? And if it's Jesus plus nothing else that defines you, then you can rest in him. And if it's not, I hope you spend some time today thinking about that. Your life is at stake. Will you trust him? I hope so. Father, uh, these are beautiful words, but oh my goodness, they just rock our soul. And I hope that everyone here, all of us, will abandon our good works. Help us to abandon, throw them out. They're no good. We can't get you that way. The way, the truth, and the life is Jesus. So please, Father, help us, save us, have mercy on us. Help us to deeply examine our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.